Okay, thank you, Stacy. We are in part four of our series, The Mad God. And we're looking this week at the gap, which we'll get to that title in a minute. But we've been looking at the Old Testament. We've been looking at the fact that we have this poor, we have this oftentimes kind of subtle mental picture that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God that we're, that we're trying to like appease or, or get around because he's, he's mad a lot. And then the New Testament, he softens up. That's our picture a lot of times. So we've been looking at, is that true? Is that how God has represented himself in the Bible? And so just to quickly recap where we've been, in part one, we looked at Adam and Eve and the great rebellion that happens there. And we saw that God responded to this great rebellion with clothing them and promising redemption. And so we saw him react with promising that he will take care of them and that he will provide a uh, savior. Then in the second week, we looked at the idea of, do we come into church like we come into the temple and have to present our best? And, and that you know there's a certain level of performance needed, especially in church, where God only wants our best. And we based this off of looking at the perfect sacrifices of the Old Testament. And we looked at the fact that those perfect sacrifices were supposed to not talk about what we needed to do, but the fact of what Jesus needed to do, that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and that it was to show us that only Jesus could satisfy God. And we're going to talk about that a little more today. Then last week we looked at the role of the law, the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the commandments, and asked, is this a standard of good that we are supposed to still use? You know, maybe get saved, but then God still expects us to use this standard of good to try to live up to something. And we looked at the fact that the law was not given to us to make us good, that the law actually brings out the sin in us. The law is given to expose that we aren't good at all. The problem isn't that we're just not good enough. The problem is, is we're not good at all. And the law shows us that because even if you think you're doing pretty well, once the law tells you not to do something, suddenly you want to do it. And it makes you actually more sinful. But the problem isn't the law. That's not a defect with the law. The law is perfect and holy. But there's a problem in you. And the law provokes that problem so that you'll see it. So that, again, you'll understand that you need Jesus. So that's what we've talked about, and I'm in the wrong, I got the wrong notes here. I almost preached last week again. wonder how far I would have gotten before you'd go, hang on a minute. I'd have noticed pretty quick. So now, this is good. All right, so we've, we've looked at salvation. We've looked at the idea that, that we can't be good enough and that God has to be good for us, but now God has expectations, right? I mean, we just heard from missionaries, so he has expectations, and, and so a lot's riding on this now, and if you don't do it, God will be displeased. And we, we find new ways to start feeling guilty and worried, and I feel like this pressure of, man, is, is God's work hinging on me? And we can have speakers that say, you know, if you don't go, and suddenly you're like, oh man, and we start living under this cloud. And so is that true? Does God need us for his work? Does he depend on on us? Is there pressure to serve the Lord? And we're going to look at that today. So I'm not going to reread the passage that Stacy read for us this morning in Exodus 32, 7 through 14, but we're going to look at it. And if you read this, it's kind of funny. It, it sounds a little bit like, it sounds a little bit like parents, doesn't it? God starts with Moses saying, those people you brought out, your people. Kind of like when a parent says, you know, like if Sarah comes to me and says, you know, your son, you know what your son did? Wait, my son? Suddenly he's my son. If he mows the lawn, it's her son. That's not how we really work. It's okay. But that's what sometimes parents do, right? Well, God kind of does that to Moses. Your people who you brought out, you can hear Moses kind of going, um, actually, you, 
that, that was you. you. You brought them out. That, that, that wasn't me. That was you. But, and he, God's mad. God's angry. And he says, I, I'm just going to wipe them out. And Moses says, oh, no, no, you don't want to do that. And Moses kind of seems to talk God down. And so the question is, well, what's going on here? And we can look at this passage and go, yikes. Good thing Moses was there. Because if Moses wasn't there, that could have gone bad. And we start forming this picture of, well, there's the angry God because God was ticked. And Moses had to kind of talk him down. Moses kind of had to, you know, try to say, hey, God, easy, easy. Count to 10, God. Does God need therapy? Is Moses, you know, there trying to keep God from going off the deep end? And if this was all we had then we might think that. If this was our only revelation of who the God of the Bible is, then we might really think that because that would seem to fit. But the thing that we have to do is remember that as God has revealed himself through the scriptures, we have to listen to God's entire revelation. We have to see how has God revealed himself, how does he explain himself, and then fit this within that so that we see a full picture. And we want to do that today. To understand who God is because God had revealed himself to Moses through more than just this moment. So a few things as we look at this story, which many of us may be familiar with this story, but here's something that when I first bumped into it, I was like, you know, this is the simplest of expressions and I'd never thought of it. Oh, I love it when I have these like major thoughts that are minor thoughts, you know, like I could have had a V8, you know, that's, so I just dated myself. <laughs> All the young people went, well, it's a V8, yeah, it's a a smoothie in the old days. So, First thing, God didn't have to include Moses. That's what we have to start with, that we are reading an account of Moses talk, God talking to Moses because God chose to. And God chose to talk to Moses, and then God chose to have Moses write it down and record it so that we could listen. We are not happening upon, you know, this is not like, hey, we un unearthed a secret recording and we found out some stuff about God and he didn't come out too good in it. No, God's like, listen, I am giving you this, I am doing this to teach you about me. And so this whole thing is a moment where God is revealing himself on purpose. He didn't have to talk to Moses. If he just wanted to wipe them out, can you imagine what he could have just done? He could have just done it. Moses comes down the mountain and goes, where'd everybody go? And why is the ground smoking? God's like, oh, well, while you're gone, they ticked me off and I smited them. Or smote, smited, smote. I wiped them out. Oh, God, what are we going to do now? Don't worry, God, Moses, I got it covered. He doesn't do that. Instead, he says, Moses, let me talk to you. I'm angry. Here's what they're doing, and I'm mad about it. He is creating a situation where he wants Moses to talk with him. He's creating a situation. Now, his anger is not fake. He's not pretending to be mad. He's really mad. His anger is real because they are really, they are really disobeying. And so it's not show anger. He is not putting on a performance for Moses. He is being honest with Moses, but he is engaging Moses because how has this God already revealed himself to Moses? I am the Lord God whose anger is but for a moment and whose loving kindness endures forever. And so what do we see here? Well, at first we see the part of him that is the anger, which he says he has and is real because he's mad at sin and they're sinning and he's angry and his anger is real. And he shares that with Moses. And then what does he do? He gives Moses the chance to access the loving kindness that endures forever. And so Moses says, well, God, what about this? What about this? God says, excellent point. Because he's revealing himself to Moses, but he's giving Moses a role. 
he's giving Moses a role as God displays two parts of his character, his anger towards sin and his grace and mercy towards sinners. And so he displays the first one, and then he allows Moses to reveal the second one. And so what we have here is a conversation that God has orchestrated to teach Moses about his entire plan of salvation that begins with God's anger towards sin and ends with God's mercy and grace in response to sin. And so we don't see, Moses isn't talking God down. He is working where God already is planning to go. And you say, interesting. And we won't, there's so much more in here, we could spend several sermons on this passage. Well, what does it say? Did it say that God changed his mind? Well, part of that is a very, that's a very poor translation. It's, it's, it's the phrase that is translated changed his mind gives us the wrong impression of what happens there. The word literally means to sigh deeply. And it's used for repent. It's used for mercy. It's used for a lot of different things. It basically means that God changed course. But it doesn't mean that God went, huh, you know, I hadn't thought of that before. That's not what it means. That's how we sometimes think it. We think that somehow Moses changed who God was, and he didn't. But, but let's test it, because you might say, really, are you sure? Are you reading too much into this? Well, we need to look at the, the wider picture, because what's happening here is actually part of God's program that he's revealing to Moses that ricochets all the way through Scripture. But we'll do it by asking, playing a stupid human game. A few a couple weeks ago, I talked about we play stupid human games. And the stupid human games are what if. Because what if's a dumb, a dumb game to play. What if this happened? Because it didn't. So you're, just, you're, you're playing imagination games. I, I, I shared first service. We, I was in Bible college. In Bible college, you play a lot of stupid human games um, because you learn all this Bible stuff, and then it's fun to argue about um, because that's what people do. And so you end up with these real interesting discussions. You know, how many angels on the head of the pin territory there. So I walked into the lounge one day. I was an upperclassman by this time. I walk into the, the, the lounge one day, and two of my uh, Bible college friends are having an argument. And they were actually kind of, they didn't get invested in it. They were starting to get a little hot. And they were arguing, and it was a dumb argument, but it was hilarious because they were invested. They were arguing over, one guy was much more conservative, kind of fundamental, you know, and this is what the God does and this is what God doesn't do and the gifts and all that. But they weren't arguing about the gifts. They weren't arguing about tongues or anything like that. But that was, he, this one guy was fundamental. And the other guy was more charismatic. So this guy, the charismatic guy who believes that, you know, God's still, you know, doing this stuff in faith and all this stuff, he's arguing that he can fly in faith. That if you have enough faith, you can fly. And the other guy's like, no, you can't. And it's fascinating because they're having this discussion. And you, and you can predict where a discussion like this, as it gets hot, goes. Because then the fundamental guy is going to say, well, go outside and fly. <laughs> and the guy's like, well, that's not the point. And they're going back and forth and back and forth. And finally, so I walk in the room, and I'm an upperclassman. And so they're, and they, were, they were like freshmen or something. So they're like, Ira, solve this for us. <laughs> oh, yeah, good. And I was like, well, this is dumb. And what I just said was, I said, well, obviously, if God wants you to do something, you can do it. So if God wants you to fly, you can fly. I said, however, since I don't think God wants you to fly, I doubt you can. And I said, in other words, you're both right. And that satisfied nobody. But we play these dumb games, right? What if? What if? Well, what if? Well, what if? Well, let's, so let's do it, even though I just said it was dumb. What if Moses didn't? What if Moses hadn't interceded? What if Moses had sat there and go, 
Good point, God. They've been annoying me too. Wipe them out. I'm sick of them as much as you are. Have at, dude. Let's start over. <laughs> what would have happened? <gasps> well, actually, we know. We're not going to turn there because we'd have to read the whole book. But if you haven't read the book or haven't read it lately, I encourage you. This is homework. Go read the book. In the book of Jonah, God looks not at God's own people being sinful, but at the Assyrians who are wicked sinful. I mean, they're bad. They're like human sacrifice bad. I mean, these guys are bad. And they've been attacking God's people too. So they're really, really bad. And God says to Jonah, I'm going to wipe them out unless they repent. So go, go try to rescue them. And Jonah goes, I'm going to go with no. In fact, I don't want you to rescue them. I want you to destroy them. This is great. This is awesome. God, best news I've heard all day. In fact, but I'm a little worried. I'm afraid that I might accidentally, if I'm not paying attention, wander into Nineveh. Don't want to do that. So I'm going to get on a boat and go in the opposite direction just to make sure I don't accidentally wander into Nineveh. And God's like, you are going to Nineveh. And he sends Jonah to Nineveh. And there's a lot of cool stuff in there, including the first manned submarine ride. And anyway, so he gets to Nineveh, and he's still like, I don't want to do this. So he walks into Nineveh, and instead of going, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he walks into Nineveh and just basically walks into the city one day and goes, y'all are going to die, and walks out. No, repent. No, he just walks, because he's like, and then he goes out and gets a good seat so he can watch the destruction. And what happens? The city repents, and God spares them, and Jonah is ticked. And what does he say? Because he knows God the same way Moses does. He says, God, I knew. I knew what you were like. You're so eager to forgive all the time. I knew it. That, didn't I tell you this would happen? That's why I didn't want to come, because you're so eager to forgive all the time. I was afraid you'd forgive him, and now you have. Why don't you just kill me? And I can hear God almost going, oh, there are days, Jonah. But the book of Jonah ends with God saying to Jonah, Jonah, shouldn't I have compassion? And so what happens when, what would have happened if Moses hadn't? I think the same thing would happen, that happened with Jonah. God would be like, Jonah? Or he'd say, Moses? Really? But instead, Moses does what he, God was, wanted him to do, which was to emphasize the other part of character. Well, let's look at some more. Look at Jeremiah. So God displays the two parts of his character, the anger and the mercy. So we did Jonah. He refused to intercede, and yet God still saved them, and that wasn't even his own people. Let's look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah is told not to. Jeremiah is amazing, and we sometimes this may cause a struggle. Three different times God does this. First one is in uh, chapter 7, verse 16. In chapter 7, verse 16, God says, as for you, talking to Jeremiah, as for you, do not pray for this people. Do not lift up, cry, or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. Whoa. Chapter 11, verse 14. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. And then 14, verse 11, one more. So the Lord said to me, Jeremiah reports, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Whoa, why would God say don't intercede? Well, because again, same as with Jonah, God is eager to forgive. And so God says, listen, Jonah, right now I don't, normally I set up this thing where you ask for forgiveness and I grant it because I'm so eager to. And here I can't 
They're too far gone. I have to bring judgment right now. It's what's best for them. And therefore, because of my character, don't ask because I can't answer. So you see a God who wants to answer, and so he says, because I really want to answer, because the kind of, the kind of God I am is a God who loves to forgive, and right now I can't. Right now I can't. They, they're, we have to punish them right now. They have to learn the hard way. And so, Jeremiah, don't intercede. And so it's kind of the opposite. Look over at Job. Job had some friends who really got crossways of God because they didn't speak well of them. They came to comfort Job and were really rotten at that. And in doing so, they also misrepresented God. So you look at the end of the book of Job, Job, 20, uh, Job 42, rather. And notice this, when God's angry at Job's friends. Job 42, 7 through 9. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. So there's the anger. Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So here's, here's the setup again. God starts with his anger. I'm mad at you. You have, done, you have done wrong. So you go talk to Job. Job's going to talk to me. And I'm going to forgive you. In other words, he's giving Job a role. But he explains it all before it happens. He doesn't say, oh, go, pray, go talk to Job. And Job will talk to me. And, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, roll the dice. See what happens to you. No, he says, and I'm going to forgive you. Because he wants to forgive him, but he's also angry. So he says, I'm going to give Job a role in this. So go talk to Job. Job's going to pray to me. And he, he, he knows that God explains the whole thing out. Ezekiel. Let's look over at Ezekiel. The prophets, of course, were dealing with a lot of bad stuff. Ezekiel 22, 30. Very interesting part of this, considering this whole concept of God's intercession. And this is where we get the title for this sermon. Ezekiel 22:30. God is speaking through Ezekiel here, and God says, I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Verse 31, he says, Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them in my wrath. Now this is where we get the gap. And we have whole conferences called Stand in the Gap Conference. Because we're looking for it. There used to be a song by Al Denson when I was a lot younger than I am now. And it went, will you be the one to answer to his call? Will you stand when those around you fall? Because this idea of God was looking for someone to stand in the gap and oh, no one was there. And, because, and then what is the implication? Because no one was there, bad things happened. And again, it paints a picture of God who, if nobody can restrain him, does bad things. And that is not what God is revealing here. So then why would he, God say this? There was, I looked for someone to stand in the gap. He's not saying that, that he wasn't able to save them because no one was there. He is pointing out why they couldn't be saved because nobody cared. He goes, I looked for one person. I want to save them. I looked for one person who would love to care enough to do that. And these people were so far gone, there wasn't anyone that I could even involve in that process. 
And that's why they needed to be punished. Not because nobody stood up, but because nobody even wanted to. Because there was nobody who even understood my salvation anymore. And so I had to deal with them because they had, they had lost me so far. And so the fact that no one was standing in the gap was not that therefore God couldn't restrain himself. It was the problem was, wow, this is how far you guys have fallen. Nobody cares. Nobody understands who I am anymore, the God who's eager to save. And so I have to let you see this. The last one is Isaiah 59. It's not the last one. I say that every time. Every time. I did it one other time. I preached this at 8. Turn to Isaiah 59. Isaiah talks a lot about God's salvation. Because again, Israel's in trouble. They've been sinning badly. Isaiah 59, 14 through 16. God describes how bad things are. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the street and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes, him, makes himself a prey. In other words, people who do the right thing just end up becoming victims. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. And was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Again, he looks around and goes, is there no one? Then his own arm brought salvation to him and his righteousness upheld him. He says he looked around and there was no one, so he did it himself. There was no one around to do it, no one to stand up, so God does it himself. And that is a picture that is fulfilled in 1 John. Now I turn way to the back. 1 John, to see the fulfillment of this. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you will not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, the propitiation is one of those big words that you, you know, if you play it in Scrabble, you probably win. And all propitiation means is to satisfy the anger of God. That Jesus satisfies the wrath of God, the anger of God. He, he, he takes care of it, makes it go away. He satisfies it. You say, now, remember, Jesus is God, so it is God satisfying his own anger. It is God dealing with himself. And taking care of it himself, which is what you saw in Isaiah, where it says, since there was no way to intercede, and God took care of it himself. And that's a picture of Jesus, who no one could fix this issue. God fixed it himself. God took care of this himself. So let's kind of put this together and start, because that's a lot. And I was a little worried that's a lot there. But I want to show this whole picture and see how this understands. What does it mean for us to intercede? What does it mean for us to come before God? Well, we do intercede, like Moses, like Job. But remember that we are appealing to the intercessor. We are appealing to the intercessor. God is not sitting there going, boy, I hope you can talk me out of this. God, take, God is the intercessor. God is the one who saves. And Jesus is our advocate. And Jesus is the one who has satisfied God's anger. So even when we pray on someone's behalf, all we are doing is we are basically appealing to the God who already is seeking to forgive 
and who is already interceding for us. And that changes the equation because sometimes we just think it's all on us. You know, we look at, that's why I didn't want to just, we couldn't just read that one passage in Exodus and say, boy, it's a good thing Moses was there. And God's like, no, you, you, you're misunderstanding what's happening here. Moses wasn't crucial to the story. I was, but I included Moses. I gave Moses a job to show who I am, but I am the God who brings mercy. I am the God who saves. I am the God who intercedes. That God is working, but he involves us in love. One of the things that we need to be careful of is that, and, and we, I hear Bible teachers say this, and I've probably said it before, and you might catch me saying again if you do say, hey, you told us not to say that. We sometimes describe that God's anger and wrath is, is in conflict with his love and desire to forgive. And we see it as a conflict. But God is not conflicted. God is, God is one. And he has no conflict within him. God is not sitting there going, well, I, you know, I feel pulled in two directions. God is, way, God is complete and perfect. But God has revealed that he has two different parts of him. Well, he has multiple parts to him. But that he does have anger, but his anger is not the biggest part. He says, my anger is for a moment, and my loving kindness is forever. But these two do not work against each other. One satisfies the other. And that's what we're seeing here. And we'll see that more next week again where his anger and his grace and mercy work together, but his goal is to save. So we appeal to the intercessor. God is working. So then what is our role? Well, God is responsible for his work. God is responsible for his work, but he has called us to faithfully participate. And if you're taking notes, or if you have the notes, underline faithfully two or three times. We are called to be faithful. We are called to faithfully participate. The, the danger becomes that as we are called to faithfully participate, we are called to work, we are called to go, we are called to go and translate the Bible, we are called to go and witness to your next door neighbor, we are called to do these things, we are not called to suddenly do that instead of God, or to think that at this point that God is just sitting there going, boy, I hope that everything works out okay. So a couple of three years ago, I came to a place where I was struggling with this myself, because I, camp was coming and I had gotten behind and I got seized with anxiety and, and guilt because I'm like, man, this is like a 60-year-old ministry and I'm going to drive it into the ground. I'm, I'm, I'm behind, I'm messing up, and I'm going to kill it. I'm going to kill God's camp. And so as I'm, I'm not really praying, but a lot of times when I pray, it's more just God and I kind of dialoguing, but I wasn't, wasn't even like reaching out to him. I was more just being wretched and going uh. and so god kind of you know turned it into prayer it's like Ira, who do you think i am <laughs> how, how stupid do you think i am i know you i know you better than you know you and do you really think that i would ever as the god of the universe go hey you know what i have this perfect plan let's have ira run it <laughs> yeah exactly god's like never been in a never been in my thought ever i am far too omniscient for that one I am a wise God, and that would be stupid. And that was, I was like, oh, yeah. And I began to, and, and so then God began to kind of walk me through his word and, and begin to understand, well, wait a minute. I'm given a responsibility, but God hasn't ceded Godhood to me. And gone, boy, well, I hope that, I hope that these humans now, I hope I can count on them because I've just, I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm just, I gave it to them, and I hope it turns out okay. God's like, no. God here, humans. And, and he reminded me of the fact that it says when Jesus was on earth, it says he was not entrusting himself to man because he knew the heart of man. 
He knew what man's like. He's like, I'm not trusting anything to you. He times the whole thing himself. And then it reminded me of the book of Esther, where Esther is in this position, and his, her uncle Mordecai becomes aware of the plot that's going to eradicate the Jews. And he, so he writes to Esther, or sends a message to Esther, and he says, Esther, you know, who knows, but this is your moment. This is, you are here. You are, you are the queen for this time. God has put you in place for such a time as this. But then Mordecai says an amazing thing, because Mordecai understands the character of God. And he says, and if you do not act, salvation will arise from somewhere else, but you and your family will be lost. And that's a huge statement for him to make, because he doesn't say, Esther, if you don't act, the Jews will die, and God's people will be eliminated in his program in shambles. Well, that'd be weird. But he says, oh, if you don't, I, I believe, Esther, that God has put you there to use you for this moment, but if you don't act, God is not hampered. And salvation will arise from somewhere else, but you'll miss out. You and your family will lose and be lost. Because you do have a calling, and you are called to be faithful in it. But you are not carrying the weight of God's work. You are carrying the weight of God's choice for you to participate. Our participation is for us, not for Him. And this is important. Because you can go too far the other way and say, well, I guess it doesn't matter what I do. I don't have to go be a missionary. I don't have to go to my neighbor because God's going to do what he's going to do. And no, that's not what he says either. That's why I want you to underline faithfully. He has called you to participate. He has called you to become part of this. But it's not because he's like, I can't do it without you. He's like, no, but I don't want to do it without you because part of who I am is to include you in the beautiful work of redemption. I want out of love to make you a part of what I'm doing with my kingdom. And you see that, and you see Jesus doing that with his disciples. He goes, okay, guys, here's what I do. Now I want you to do it. Why? Why do it that way? Because I love you. Because this is the most beautiful work of the human race, is to declare God's salvation, which is why we started with how lovely on the feet of those who proclaim good news. This is a wonderful thing to do, and God says, and I want you to do it. And so that day as I struggled with camp, I wasn't suddenly thinking, oh, well, I don't have to worry about planning for camp. No, I needed to get going. I needed to get myself in gear and step up. But tell you, being freed of the guilt of, I am going to derail God's plan. God's going, well, no, Ira, you can't do that. But you, you can mess up what I want to do through you. So Ira, just get busy. But it's because I love you. And boy, that... Well, that changes the equation, doesn't it? That my service to God is out of mercy and love, not out of obligation and fear. God included Moses that day because he wanted to let Moses be part of salvation. It was an act of love towards Moses. It's to involve us in the blessing of redemption because we are de dealing with and serving a God whose desire is to clothe, to save, to care for, to redeem. That's who he is. His anger is one part, but the greater part is his desire to show love, grace, love in grace and mercy. And those two are not in, they are not in opposition. He is not wrestling between the impulse for anger and the impulse for love. And that's why he takes us through these stories to show us how it works. Moses, I'm really angry. Now, we treat God like a pagan God a lot. 
Because the pagan gods need to be satisfied. The pagan gods need to be appeased. The pagan gods get mad, and you've got to try to make them not be mad by giving them sacrifices and, and giving them obedience. And if you do the right thing, then maybe God won't be mad. And we treat God that way. You know, you miss, you, you skip, you skip church, and your car breaks down, you're like, yeah, I shouldn't have skipped church. As if God is like, I don't teach you. And we have this idea because we start treating God like a pagan God, and God really hates that. In fact, all through the Old Testament, what does God tell them again and again? Don't treat me like a pagan God. I'm not like those gods. They're fake gods. They're the gods you guys make up. You guys make up really mean gods. I'm not like that. So don't treat me like that. So notice in the, back in Exodus, what does, what does Moses say? And why do you think it's in the story? Because God says, I'm going to wipe them out. Moses says, well, then everybody's going to think you're like the pagan gods. God's like, good point. You do know me. You do know me. You get it. I'm, you're right. I'm not like that. And that was the point. And this is why we do this, so that you can learn that I am not like those pagan gods. I am eager to forgive. My anger is momentary. And boy, sin makes me mad. But that anger drives me. It fuels my drive for repentance through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And my anger is what serves you through the Savior. So we need to remember that. So next week, we're going to wrap up this series and then move into the, our summer series, which is called The Heaven Code. But before we get to the heaven code where we're going to look at salvation and we're going to spend most of our time in the New Testament looking at what is salvation? Because we have these ideas of, you know, I'm, well, you need to ask Jesus into your heart. You know that, ver that line is not in the Bible anywhere? Pray this prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. It's not in the Bible. What? Well, that's how I got saved. Did you? <laughs> Guess you better come back. But next week, we're going to look at chasing a cheater and we're going to see these themes carried out in the prophet of Hosea and look at these two parts of God, God's character, his anger and his grace and mercy, and how they work together and how it's part of God's beautiful story of how he is trying to redeem us.